that's what happens at the end of every episode, by the way. <laughs> okay, one of those will probably be good, you know? Hello, and welcome to yet another installment of the fabulous series, Murder's a Drag, hosted by yours truly, Aura Van Dank, a desert local in California. That might be vague. I'm sure I didn't know what the desert in California was on the East Coast. So that's Palm Springs, essentially. I mean, it's called the Coachella Valley. I'm going to stop while I'm ahead because not a single one of you cares. I tend to forget. So like before we even get started, I'm going to go ahead and give my sources and maybe I can get on some sort of a schedule of doing this so that I stop forgetting my sources. Because I promise you, these stories are real. I'm not just making all of this up. And if I was, then you all should be very concerned because it is some gruesome and tragic shit and nobody should be making that up. What's wrong with me today? All right, sources. I got my research this week from Gay and Lesbian Archives of the Pacific Northwest, New York Times articles from the 90s by Dan Mangan, LA Times articles from the 90s by Kim Murphy, and a Buffalo News article from 1995 credited to the staff. And does that mean like somebody didn't like the person who wrote the article or that there were just like too many authors involved in the article or like why is it just credited to staff is like is that shade towards the author what exactly i want to know anyway this week i'm back again sitting pretty looking decent and i've not done much this week besides learning about how terrible i am in social situations so i think i told you all a while back that i was in a theater production whilst away from this podcast and my boyfriend would come to the rehearsals and he would talk to the theater people. And anyway, he got a job there. Might have even already said that. I'm not sure. If I haven't, my boyfriend works at a theater. So we go to the productions that are there and uh, cast parties at the end of the productions. So we were at said cast party. And in the show, there's a character who happens to have the same name as my ex and happens to have also committed suicide because they were a terrible person and trying to run away from criminal things that they did. And this is a fiction play that they wrote. And that's a real thing that happened in my life. And uh, we were already separated. I think I've also talked about that on here. If not, then if you're interested, you should probably listen to other episodes. I am a trauma vomiter. I just vomit my trauma at this camera. And that's how we do this. And this microphone. Not leaving you out, microphone. I love you. Um, but anyway, I decided that I would share that story with the people from the play. And the looks that I got were just, like, horrified looks of pity and questioning why exactly this person is sharing this story with total strangers. But I just thought it would be, like, a cutesy, relatable thing because it was in the show, but that's not a cutesy, relatable thing. And I just don't have a filter, and I need to get better at that. And I've been trying for 24 years, but so far, no good. Yeah, that was that was a bad, you know, probably top five worst party moments of my life. The rest of the time was fine. I just stayed away from the people that I told about my trauma. So this week's been fun. Lots of self-discovery in that regard. Moving on. This week, I took a deep dive into a case from the 90s that I read about on an archive of LGBT violence in the United States. There's a really long list, and it's tragic to look at, but also important to dig into these stories. You guys know this is what I've chosen to do as a passion. So 
This case is of two women living in the Pacific Northwest who were murdered gruesomely in the 90s. They were killed by a psychopath who had already previously killed in a fit of homophobic rage. Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdil have very limited information about their early lives. There's plenty of information of them after they met each other, which is great, but I do wish that I could know a little bit more about their personal lives. Michelle Abdil was born July 8th, 1953 in Roseburg, Oregon, and from what I read, had a very close relationship with her mother. Her father worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad as a locomotive engineer after he got out of through serving in World War II. Roxanne Ellis was born November 3rd, 1942 in Amarillo, Texas. And like I said, it was pretty tough to find stuff about their early lives. But from what I could gather, Roxanne was married, had a kid, and then got divorced. Had two kids, actually, excuse me. And this is where she was at in life when she initially met Michelle Abdel. Roxanne and Michelle met in Colorado while Roxanne was working at a doctor's office as an obstetrician nurse. Michelle happened to get a job at the same office and the two immediately struck up a quick friendship and started spending a lot of time together. Before they even had time to wrap their heads around it, that lots of time together BFF friendship turned into a romantic, okay, now we're fucking, kind of a friendship. And things got intimate, and things got romantic, and they fell head over heels in love with each other. Before long, they were committed to each other for life, because this was the 90s, and you couldn't get married yet if you were gay, so that wasn't gonna happen. But let's call a spade a spade, they were wives. Although they absolutely loved Colorado, it was gorgeous, small town living was definitely their cup of tea, it did come with its cultural issues back then, and the homophobia was rampant there, so they decided to move where Michelle's mother was living in Oregon, which was a little bit more liberal and West Coast thinking. The couple decided to move their new little family to Medford, Oregon. And Michelle's mom had actually started a real estate school there. So the women got certified through her mother's school and opened up their own property management company. And they were super successful. They also both became very active in LGBT activism in their community. They were super excited to have something finally other than just homophobia and hate in their community. So they wanted to get really involved and help further the rights and causes of the local LGBT community. They were also both fairly religious and were well known for lecturing at Christian fundamentalist churches about how the Bible does not preach hate against homosexuals and in fact does not condemn homosexuals at all. So they did have controversies surrounding that, but they also had a lot of support, and they would even be on TV sometimes giving these lectures. So they were well known for being activists, but they still lived their lives low-key. Roxanne and Michelle were building a very successful life for them and their family out in Oregon with their new business, with their activism. They were having a blast and really appreciating the move. They became successful enough to actually hire Roxanne's daughter, Lori, who is an adult at this point and even has her own baby. And Lori works up front at the property management office as sort of a clerical receptionist kind of work. By this point in time, Michelle and Roxanne have been together for 12 whole years and are 42 and 53 respectively. They were really building their ways up toward a comfortable retirement, a very comfortable retirement. On December 4th, 1995, Roxanne gets a call that someone wants to meet 
and look at a vacant property that they're managing at an apartment complex. And she scribbles down on her notepad, 11 a.m. Sheridan Road. And that was it. Her daughter Lori says this wasn't super usual of her, that normally she would write the name, the address, you know, all of the information in her schedule. But this was early morning. She just got in the office. She gets a call. So she just jotted it down and ran out to show this property and make some money. Roxanne drives her truck over to the complex to meet the person and things start to immediately get weird. By 4 p.m., when she stops responding to any of her daughter's texts, Lori starts to get really worried and finally gets a call from Roxanne saying that she's just out shopping, which is highly unusual for Roxanne to be doing, according to Lori, and that she would be home soon. And when Lori asks Roxanne why she missed her other appointments that day, she says because she must have slipped her mind or she must have forgotten to put them on her schedule Also highly unusual and not like Roxanne at all. About an hour later at 5 p.m., Michelle, Roxanne's wife, gets a call. Nobody really knows who from and tells people at the office, including Lori, that she's going to go jump Roxanne's car because her truck battery died and that she'd be back with Roxanne. Once Michelle pulls away to go rescue Roxanne from her dead battery, no one sees either of them ever again. By late that night, early the next morning area, their family reports them missing and gives police all of the really mysterious circumstances that they went missing under, and police drive out to take reports and check out the apartment complex that they went to and the apartment itself. They find Michelle's car at the apartment that Roxanne was showing unlocked, containing her purse, wallet, valuables. Michelle's brother says that she would never do that and she knew better. And everybody obviously at this point is panicking that something bad has happened to them. And to make matters more concerning, Michelle's truck is nowhere to be found. The truck that supposedly had a dead battery is gone. Police go up to the apartment itself to see if they can find anything, but there are no clues in the apartment itself. It's clean, no sign of a struggle, nothing has happened, essentially, in the apartment. Having really no information beyond that, the case is very cold very quickly, and the three days go by before anything else happens. That third day since they were last seen, a local cable repair guy goes to an apartment complex across town from the last place that they were seen, or known to be at that other apartment complex, and sees Roxanne's truck in the parking lot and recognizes it from the news, so he just immediately calls 911 without touching anything or looking at anything. And when the police get there, they find two bodies in the car covered in cardboard and wrapped in drapes. These bodies had been gagged, bound with duct tape, covered with bandanas over the eyes, mouths covered with duct tape as well, and they were hogtied. Police identified the two bodies as Michelle and Roxanne, and found that the cause of death was two gunshot wounds to the head, each, execution style. Police also noticed, because of the blood splatter patterns in the car, that the shooting happened right there in the truck. So all of these circumstances, the gruesome way that Michelle and Roxanne were found, police couldn't go to their go-to excuse of robbery gone wrong, because nothing was taken. Credit cards, debit cards, everything was still there. This wasn't a robbery. Along with their bodies in the truck, police also found a shoe print belonging to a large man's boot 
on the tailgate of the truck, pointing to a third person being there, the murderer. Medical examiners do autopsies and determine that the women had been murdered on December 4th, the initial day that they were reported missing. So it would have all happened that afternoon. And they also found that there was nothing wrong with the truck battery, meaning that that call was definitely to lure Michelle to Roxanne so that they would both be murdered together, further pointing to the probability of a hate crime. It also proved to Lori, Roxanne's daughter, that the call that she got from her mother that was concerning with her excuses for why she missed appointments and saying that she was just going shopping was probably a forced call by the killer. Police were contacted by a witness in the neighborhood who had seen a man park the silver truck in the complex where it was parked and then walk away from it. She thought nothing of it until she saw on the news that there were bodies in the truck. But although they had a witness, that wasn't helpful. They already knew that there was a man there. So like I said, this case was still cold. They had no information whatsoever. And the note that Roxanne left only said 11 a.m. Sheridan Road. No name, no context. They really had nothing to go off of. However, that witness was able to provide enough details to get a composite sketch on the news. And once that circulated, they got a very concerning call from a mother who claimed that that composite sketch had to be of her son and that she was worried that her son had murdered those women. She even described him as sick on the phone call and said that they had just moved from California to Medford, Oregon, three weeks prior. She gave police her son's name, Robert Ackerman. Police are thinking, okay, red flag, if a mother is turning on her son, we probably got the guy, or got a guy who has definitely murdered people, because no mother is going to report her son to the police unless she knows for a fact that he's done something wrong. So they decide to call California on the phone, just, hey, Miss California, I don't know how that works. I don't know how the police departments communicate with each other, or if that's the FBI or the CIA, or how it how any of it works. They just called California and asked about Robert Ackerman, and they were like, all right, if you know where he is, arrest him now, because we've been looking for him for three weeks since he ran away, not moved, ran away. So now we're going to go back in time. <laughs> We're in Visalia, California. I think that's how you say that. Visalia, California, 1972. Scott Christopher George is brought into the world a happy, bouncing baby boy. He was raised in that same town, Visalia, a very small farming community. He loved outside. He loved people. He was very energetic, very happy kid. He was raised in a very loving family, even though his parents were separated. He spent his summers on the lake water skiing and the rest of his time doing farm boy stuff and farm boy land and loving it. He even spent his nights going out doing some of that real genuine western line dancing. Yeah. By all accounts from members of Scott's family, he was a people person, so much so that it was his biggest fault. He was way too trusting, way too empathetic. There's that word again. When Scott was 23... His dad, Art, started dating a woman named Darlene. And Art was very excited to learn that Darlene had a son the same age as Scott because Scott had been hurt and manipulated by so many people that he wasn't out making friends. He had just gone through a breakup with his fiance that he was engaged to because that is what the word fiance means. I'm over explaining now. 
He was not in a good place. His dad wanted Darlene to force their sons to be BFFs. Never really works, but he had the best of intentions. Darlene has a son named Robert Ackerman. Wow, the same psychopath that I was just talking about. And on October 3rd, 1995, days before they went to Oregon, Scott and Robert go out for a night of bar hopping. When Scott never came home, Robert was the number one suspect because he was refusing to answer questions, and on three separate occasions, refused to be interviewed by police. And after that third attempt, Robert and his mother quickly packed up a truck in the middle of the night and fled to Medford, Oregon. Police are just as disturbed as anyone who learns that Robert has just been on somewhat of a killing spree and running away from a murder and doing more murders. This is obviously a very dangerous person, and now their number one priority is to get Robert Ackerman in custody. Robert's mother also told police that he might have fled back to their hometown of Stockton, California, because he didn't know any other places, so it was a likely chance that he would be there. And sure enough, after getting SWAT and some other big league feds on the case, they found Robert Ackerman at a motel in Stockton, California. And on December 13th, 1995, Robert is arrested. The investigation after having Robert in custody ended up just getting more difficult because Robert is an evil psychopath and just wants to make everybody's life as hellish as possible and is, does a pretty good job at that. Initially, he admits to killing Roxanne and Michelle and says that his motive was to rob them because he wanted money to go see his girlfriend. He said that when the women refused to write him checks, he murdered them. The story stinks off the bat because he took no cash, no debit cards, no checks, nothing from them. If your motive was robbery, why didn't you rob them? That's like, I mean, if you're going to shoot them anyway, then why didn't you take anything from them? So investigators are just kind of like, mm-hmm, go on. Robert continues his bullshit girlfriend money story, and that's the end of his cooperation. So police have to go find this girlfriend that they only know as Ecstasy. They actually do manage to find her. Her real name is Ala Kosova, and she's an exotic dancer in Las Vegas. Not this guy's girlfriend, obviously. Ala left Soviet Moldavia, which is not Moldavia anymore. Now it's a different country. But either way, she fled Soviet Russia to come to America and started making bank in Vegas as an exotic dancer. Ala told police that Robert would come down after he would work his trucking shit when he had a job which he lost. But while he had it and had money, he would spend it all on her in Vegas. He would take her to dinner, buy her gifts, but they never slept with each other. So she figured that this was the same kind of relationship that she had with other clients that she had in Vegas. Like I said, he lost his job. And when his savings dried up, he came up with a bullshit story about how he was robbed for every last penny he had in New York and couldn't come to see her but wanted to maintain their relationship. And Ala was like, yeah, fuck that. That's bullshit. I'm blocking your number and I'm changing mine. I don't think you could block numbers back then. Yeah, no, she just changed her number. That's what she did. And that was that, as far as she was concerned. Until December 10th, when he shows up in Vegas again with $5,000 from allegedly selling his car, which he actually did do. I don't know why I said allegedly. He had $5,000 from selling his car. 
Mind you, this is three days before he's apprehended and arrested in California, so he's already murdered three people. And after a dinner and weird night of him paying for women to dance for Allah, which she was not on board with, but, like, at least she was making money, so she just kind of sat there, uh, he actually pulled a gun in the car and showed her that it was covered in blood and admitted to her that he'd killed three people and then pulled out a stun gun to threaten her with and started crying and sobbing about how she didn't love him and she was just using him for his money. So Allah got real smart real quick, told him, no, I am in love with you. I just need to go home real quick and pack my clothes so we can run away together. And that's how she got out of that situation. And he ends up in the motel in California, arrested. Here we are. She's being questioned, telling police, this guy is crazy. He's been obsessed with me. He's basically a stalker. I am not his girlfriend. That's a bullshit story. This is not a motive. After they hear that story, the detectives are like, okay, stay here. We're definitely going to want you to testify that crazy ass story on the stand because this guy is a psychopath and needs to be put away for a long time. When the trial begins, it goes off the rails before it even starts. Robert starts to claim that he was deprived of his right to an attorney, that all of the confessions that he made were pulled out of him. And I'm not even going to call them confessions. He was just telling them what happened days prior to him being arrested. He, he, like, he panicked and told the truth is what happened. Then he admits to the unsolved missing case of Scott George and says that he murdered him, but starts refusing to tell police where the body is unless they give him some sort of a deal, which they're just like, no, you just tell us where he is. Police actually go bring Robert's dad into the equation and tell him, hey, I'm going to let the cops search our property. If you hid anything on our property, like a dead body, then maybe you should tell me about it so I could tell them and we can get this over with. On the property, where, by the way, they have, like, four abandoned mine shafts and a cave, which is fucking wild. Whose property? Like, what? Where is this? In one of those mine shafts, he dumped Scott's body after shooting him in the head twice, the same way that he killed Michelle and Roxanne three weeks later. So police go to the property, search the mine shaft, find Scott's body, and now he's got three murder charges on him. And then... There were the letters. While he was sitting in jail during the trial, Robert decided to start writing insane confession letters to his hometown newspaper in Stockton, California, and claimed a lot of wild shit in them. I have to quote it because of how crazy it is. Initially, he says that he told the robbery stories that inmates in prison wouldn't get mad at him for killing people because they were lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. He didn't want to be known for killing that demographic because he knew that the men in prison, a lot of them were bisexual and didn't want to be known for killing bisexual people. And then goes on to explain that the night he killed Scott, he was motivated by the fact that Scott was sad at his fiance leaving him and made a move on Robert. God knows why he's disgusting, but Poor Scott was in a bad place and apparently bisexual. And Robert, having discovered that Scott was bisexual, became enraged and murdered him. And he said, quote, I've known bisexual women and that's cool. I have no problem with that. I have no compassion for lesbians or bisexual or gay men. I can't deal with it. So he's trying to excuse the murder of Scott and the murder of the two married women in Oregon on 
like gay panic defense, basically. Like, no, fuck that. Fuck you. And then he claims that he's homophobic because he was molested as a child and goes on to describe his molestation in graphic detail. This guy is obviously off his rocker at this point. He also goes on to say, quote, I don't care for lesbians. I couldn't help but think that Roxanne is 54 years old and has been dating that woman for 12 years. Isn't that sick? That's someone's grandma, for God's sake. Could you imagine my grandma, a lesbian, with another woman? I couldn't believe that. So he's giving more and more motive. Mind you, the trial hasn't even concluded, and all of these letters are more than admissible in court. After sitting in jail for nine months and slowly coming more and more unhinged, Robert finally agrees to plead guilty on all of the charges against him. And as he sat and got crazier, he threatens his defense lawyer's lives and the lives of his defense lawyer's family and goes through like four different lawyers who keep asking to be excused and he keeps firing them and is just being a real fucking pain in the ass. And then finally, in October of 1996, Robert Ackerman was found guilty on all three counts and sentenced to death by lethal injection. And even though in his letters he claimed that he wanted to be killed, and even specifically said by lethal injection, he immediately changed his tune and started trying to go through the appeals process. But not too long into that process, he was deemed way too delusional to be appealing his own sentence to death row. And also, that got his sentence commuted to just life without parole because they couldn't justify being able to kill a person or, you know, execute a person who was completely out of their mind. And that was all the way later in 2011 when he was deemed too crazy to function. And seven years later, in 2018, he was found dead in his cell alone from natural causes. And he died behind bars after suffering probably worse than the death sentence because he went crazy and had to deal with the prison of his own craziness. That guy is pure evil. Even some of the attorneys and judges on the case said that he's the most evil person that they'd ever encountered. Oh, and also remember Ala Kosova, the exotic dancer from Vegas? She got married, had four kids, and became a multi-millionaire real estate investor after purchasing her own chain of Sun City spas. <laughs> and this is real. She later became a contestant on season four of The Apprentice with that guy who somehow became president for a while. He even, that one even found out about this case and was just like, but she's very pretty. Jesus Christ, I can't believe if this is, a, I'm talking about him on my podcast and pull my wig down so that he can't see me. Uh, yeah, it's real. Her name is now Ala Waltenberg. So, Wartenberg. Ala Wartenberg. Look it up. Okay. So, yeah, this has been another week. This has been another episode. I hope you're enjoying me because I know I'm enjoying you as I look at a camera recording of myself. <laughs> Alrighty, you guys have a beautiful week. I am going to go rest, so I'm ready for tomorrow. I am so happy you all listen to me and watch me because I listen to you and watch you while you sleep. I'll see you next week. Bye.